it's easy to get sidetracked in that environment and just bumbled around. But if you've got a strong mission focus, everyone's like, we've got to do this, let's move this, let's work together. And then you talk to each other and then you encourage each other and then you help your mate when he falls over. And like those little things is what gets you working together. And that's when you can actually do things that aren't, don't seem possible, is when you actually cooperate as a team. It sounds crazy, but it's, it's so basic. It's so basic yet so hard to do is to cooperate to work well and stay focused on just that mission. Welcome to the Sam Gash podcast. These are conversations with trailblazers, rule breakers, and those who pave their own lane and venture boldly into the unknown. By entering this uncharted arena, they inevitably stumble, yet they all display an ability to innovate and contribute, even when the odds are not in their favor. We skip over their highlights reel and go into the guts of who they are and what they believe in. I'm your host, Samantha Gash, and I'm an endurance athlete, a former corporate lawyer and social impact entrepreneur. It is my absolute privilege to create the space for these guests. If you found these conversations to be of value or have any feedback, please subscribe, rate and review, and I hope you enjoy. Well, welcome to the podcast, guys. This podcast, I'm recording in quarantine and I'm recording it with my husband, Mark Wales. Um, It's an interesting conversation in the fact that we've been in this like immersive, intense experience together uh, where we've done, you know, a pretty 100-day-plus lockdown in Melbourne. We've now been in two weeks quarantine in WA Mark's also in this place where he's just finished his memoirs. In fact, actually, he's on the last um, draft of it. And so it's this really reflective conversation where I think things aren't settled. Feelings um, are probably a bit more intense and heavy than they would normally be. And I kind of love that because sometimes it's nice to see when people are in the in-between state, when there's not clarity on a certain thought, you can see the mullings in between. But enough of that, I want to give a bit of an overview on Mark because, you know, we kind of dive straight into kind of like topics. And so here is his bio. I want to get it right. So I'm going to make sure I read off his speaker profile, which is Mark Wales grew up in the red dirt of Western Australia uh, in the Pilbara. And after deciding that he wanted to join the SAS in high school, he embarked on a career in the Australian military that eventually led him into the battlefields of Afghanistan. He was a troop commander in charge of 30 elite soldiers. His role was to lead combat missions against senior enemy commanders deep beyond enemy lines. And through this unique and harsh environment, Mark developed his skills in leadership, teamwork and high performance. Like so many in his situation, Mark has battled um, stress disorders from war, war fighting in Afghanistan and his approach to recovery is something I admire so deeply about him because he throws himself into it with the exact same intensity as he did to his special ops training. He rigorously researches the fundamentals of neurobiological science and the benefits of skill development. Um, and I think this way that he's approached his recovery is the same way that he's approached the transformative evolution of his career into completely new arenas. I hope you guys love this conversation. It's obviously so personal in many ways. And we talk about like elements of our relationship, elements about our past that are completely separate to our relationship. But with what we have in our past is what we bring into our future. So once again, I hope you enjoy and uh, letting it go into it. 
Okay, press record. <laughs> so this is a definitely a different style podcast. Uh, I'm with my greatest supporter, but also harshest critic, <laughs> my dear husband, Mark Wales. And may I add, we are on the final day of a two-week quarantine after a significant part- time in stage four lockdown in Victoria. So welcome to the podcast. Welcome, everyone. I'm very excited to be getting out of quarantine. <laughs> Are you as excited to be on the podcast? I'm very thrilled. It's We just wrestled Harry to bed after about three hours, so <laughs> I'm ready for a rest. I know. We were kind of part of us were like, should we do the podcast right now? Because literally we were spending three hours getting us onto bed. But um, here we are, and the reason I... In many respects, there'd be some people who would think, oh, why wouldn't you get Mark on the podcast earlier Um, because he has such an incredible story. But at the same time, I feel like I needed to get my skills in podcasting up before I tackled the beast of Mark. And also, you know, the podcast is often a reflection of the relationships that I've had existing over years. And really, like, you're a more newer feature in my life, a significant but a newer feature in my life. So I could introduce you, and I certainly will at the beginning, but I've always described you as the greatest transformer that I know. But if I was to ask you to introduce yourself to um, the people who listen to this podcast, how would you give that a crack? Um, I'd say I grew up in regional WA and was was as far from the army as you can get, but I wanted to go and join the SAS. It was the only thing I wanted to do with my life. And I think that's that's my introduction. I was a little kid, same as everyone else. I wanted to go to the SAS. I managed to get there through a lot of hard work, a fair bit of luck. And along the way, faced a, a ton of a ton of different obstacles. And then coming out of the other side of that, used all those experience to build something else. So that's really it. You always kind of talk about this contrast of I did a lot of hard work and I had a bit of luck, but can we kind of go back to the beginning when you were a young kid, you were living in kind of more regional WA with your family and what was like that family dynamic? Were you, you know, people might think of an SAS troop commander and they think of this really sporty guy. Is that kind of, um, is that how you considered yourself when you were a kid? No, I was a I was a dreamer. Dad said you're a, you're a daydreamer or a dreamer because I was never helping him do work and stuff like that. I was always reading books and so I was a bit of a nerd. I used to run off and read a book if I had a spare moment. Um, and I think I had a vivid imagination and I always, always saw scenarios or things unfold and it just took me a long time to think it up, anything. So I still, I still got that now. I've just use it in different areas but I guess that's what it was like we we had a pretty we were pretty lucky as kids so we grew up in I was born in Newman where my parents were working the mine up north to nine all mine and then later on we moved to another regional town on the coast which is called Geraldton and Perth and I was lucky because both my parents were there you you know my dad my mum died when I was 23 but they were both there and part of my childhood all the time, I was I was lucky because um, that is a choice, and I realise it now. Now that you know, we've got little Harry, and 
the pressures of career and all that stuff, it is actually a choice to spend time with your kids and it's an important gift. So I was lucky like that, all, all three of us. I had two brothers, um, an older brother, Steve, and a young brother, Dan. And we used to beat each other up. And I was just thinking this the other day, we used to roam free across Geraldton for a whole day. Parents wouldn't know we were, we'd just be out on our treadleys, um, you know, causing trouble. Um, and that was, I, I don't know how much that happens now, but it was a good thing as a kid. Did your parents ever have concerns about you guys going out on your own? Not really, which is kind of surprising because Geraldine had some shady <laughs> characters back then. Um, no, they were pretty good with it. And luckily we, we didn't run into any trouble really, nothing serious, so... Um, I want to dissect kind of you and your brothers because you've all headed into very um, unique career paths and there's not a significant overlap between the three of you and your personalities are hugely different as well. But for you who decided at a really young age that you wanted to be in the, well, the SAS, which meant that you had to go to the military first, where did that come from? And did you share that conversation with the family and did they support you at a very young age with that? Yeah, I think so both, looking at both sides of my family, dad's side from regional Victoria, now were kind of lumberjacks, tradies and, and truckies, so very trades-based. And then my mum's side were all farmers. Five, my mum had five sisters that all grew up on a farm in Yarloop and they were rough. Like my grandmother had a massive jaw and she was a tough kind of country lady. And they were all tall. My mum was six foot tall. The, all the sisters, you've met a few of them now. They're pretty, um, you know, they're battle axes, they're tough. And so both sides of the family had that kind of background. And then when I was a kid, I remember, you know, we grew up and we were outdoors a lot, but I first saw the first thing about the SAS when I was in grade nine and I was sitting in class in Perth and a kid in my class was a, a military nut. He, he used to be at cadets and um, he came into class with a magazine. It was like a military sort of magazine that had black and white images of soldiers storming the Iranian embassy. They were counter-terrorists, you know, storming the Iranian embassy in London and that was the British SAS. And I'd never seen anything like it. These guys like abseiling down a building, submachine guns, running through burning windows to go and rescue people. I thought that was crazy. And that's what gave me the idea. When I saw it, and I, I asked him, I'm like, who, is it, who are these guys? He goes, they're British SAS, but there's an Australian unit. I remember when he said that, I was like, oh, Australian unit. How do you get in? And he goes, you have to go through the army. I was like, shit. And that lunchtime, I ran to the library and asked for books on the SAS. And there was about four of them because there was no there were no books back then on on the SAS. It was kind of rare. There's hundreds now, but it was different back then. And I found a couple, and was like, "Holy shit, this is it! This is what I'm doing." And yeah. did you tell your mum and dad? I think it's at one point I did, but I kind of kept it as my own secret because I'm like, "This is such a hard thing to do. I think I don't want to tell anyone about it." So I kind of kept it quiet, but I talked to a lot of mates about it. I'm like, there's this SAS unit. Because I knew they wouldn't give a shit either way. Um, but I told, I was reading one of my SAS books in social studies class. And I remember one of the social studies teachers walking down and he saw a picture of a soldier. And he's like, want to be an SAS soldier, do you, hey? And he was a Brit. And he was, <laughs> um, he was like, hmm. 
and he was kind of being, I don't know if he was challenging me or not, but he was, I remember him thinking, oh, that's interesting. And, um, yeah, my mind was kind of made up and I started looking for how I was going to join the army. And I had a mate that wanted to go through ADFA, which is the Defence Academy. I was like, oh, that's a good idea because then you get a degree and you get to join the army and off you go. So that's that's how I started. You know, when you're watching that first kind of scene and you're talking about it, is it the adventure? Is it the weaponry? Is it the excitement? Is it that it's from a world that's so removed to what you know that drew you in? And I, and I say that knowing that after you researched, it could have been more like holistic, but at the beginning, like what was that really guttural response to that? Um, I think some of it was my granddad had fought in Moritai in World War II and he was, he never said much about it, but I remember him showing me a, a samurai sword that he had in his cupboard and this old ancient brown kind of bit of steel with a little, little bit of rust on it and he showed it to me and there were, there were chips along the edge of the blade and I was like, where would you get – I asked him about the sword. I'm like, where did this come from? He told me he took it from a, a Japanese officer, a dead Japanese officer, and I asked him what the chips in the on the blade were, and he goes, they're, they're from the bones of our guys. And I remember holding this sword thinking, like the, that kind of history of war, I was like really taken aback by that. And I remember thinking, what had he seen or done? I, I remember thinking that, like, he was a young man once and he'd done all this stuff in a faraway land. And it's just, you couldn't make that stuff up. It was like a, it's like all the films I'd watched as a kid. Some people find that terrifying when they would kind of think of that visualisation. But for you, it seemed to make you more committed to this idea of being in the SAS. Like, what is that? I think... I think I knew it was going to be that, like a, a hard, I knew it was going to be a hard thing. You seem to always be intrigued by the hard path. Like in, you know, I've known you now for, you know, three, four years. And, you know, from the very first time that we had a proper conversation after we got off the island and Survivor where you concealed your truth to me, like everything that you've ever done is when your back's against the wall and, you know, I I still don't get where that comes from. I just think that I kind of knew that I was a bit of a wanderer, I think, in a lot of aspects of life, and I didn't actually turn on until I was really under pressure. I knew that playing footy, I was like an average footy player, but when there was a really hard game, I got really good all of a sudden. And so... Um, I just remember thinking I knew I would love that and I knew it would be something that would excite me and I'd be good at it. Uh, it just – and that bit just caught me out I was just like, you don't know anything when you're a kid and I just – that whole I, – I was I was heading to it kind of no matter what because there were all those things that happened but you just have no idea the path you're starting down. I'm, I'm glad I did it but I never thought of it in that way. You're quite emotional right now. What what made you feel that way? Probably two weeks of quarantine <laughs> <laughs> has been fucking part of it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it was just that. It was like I hadn't thought of my, my granddad. Hmm. 
you know, you, they're kind of your, your ancestors in a lot of ways. I remember feeling such a void when I no longer had any grandparents left. I like, I really felt it like that mm, yeah. there was a part of my history that was gone. And, you know, my grandfather was also played a huge role in the military um, throughout his career. And I saw it stay with him till his very final days. Mm. Um, and of course, being your wife, which still sounds so bizarre to say, like you're my husband. Um, but I, you know, you've been out of the military for six years now and it's still a feature of our lives every single day. And I also wonder the older you get and kind of more into the, the latter part of your life, is that going to be even increasingly a part of our lives as well? Yeah, I've always thought about that because for me, I didn't mind going, like I was happy to go away and, and do the operations, but what I didn't want is for, I didn't want for anything to kind of dominate my life, especially later. You see these, sometimes sadly, these older guys that have been damaged badly by war and that is, it's pretty sad because they, they struggle and this was true for World War One and World mm. War Two. the generations that went there, they never fully recovered. They lived short lives Sometimes they'd, you know, inhaled gas on the Western Front or they'd had shocking injuries or it just, it affects entire generations in ways that I probably didn't fully appreciate. And I think for us it would have been fine, but I ended up doing pretty sustained operations for a long time. And I think you just, it's a lot to, you know, it's just a lot. You're, it's a lot to take in. Mm. It's hard sometimes, emotional, but... It's also a lot of really good things, and that's what I remember mostly are the really good things. We had good teams, good training, good jobs, um, and, and I could not have timed it any better. Like I basically left my training as East Timor started in 1999. I graduated Duntra in 2000. So it was a start of nearly 20 years of operations for the military, and we were in the hot seat. Well, and you joined like ADFA as a 17-year-old because mm. Western Australians, you know, finish a year younger than most other people. That's special. So tell me about kind of flying over to the East Coast, like a family that didn't kind of travel a huge amount. You headed to the East Coast to go to ADFA. You're in Canberra, <laughs> the capital of Australia. Mm. What was those first couple of weeks like being so removed from your family? Oh, it was a shock because I'd just, I'd just got my license in Perth. We'd just gone through an amazing summer. I just met a little girlfriend that was at one of the cashiers at Red Rooster. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I got a girlfriend. And then I had to pack up and go to the military. And I was just, I was just starting to enjoy Perth. And then I flew, we flew all the way to Canberra. And I'll never forget landing at the airport. I'm like, where the hell is the town? <laughs> I didn't realize that Canberra was just one spread out, bloody single-story office block city. And when we drove from the airport to the um, barracks, I remember seeing cows in the paddocks like next to the road just near the airport. I'm like, where the hell are we? We're in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like, And then um, we got to ADFA and I was excited to be there. I knew it was tricky to get in and... I've been, wait, I've been waiting for years and working hard for years. So 
just starting that journey was good, but I was like, holy shit, it's going to be four years before I even get out of training. I just wanted to go do the, the good work. So it was a long it was a long haul, but I eventually warmed up to it and it ended up being good fun. Can you tell the story of that photo of your <laughs> first day at Adfa? So I didn't I didn't really realise this, but because I went to a kind of public school, I didn't know about the whole private school thing about how they they're good schools and they wear kind of the blazers and the tie and they're all well spoken and polite gentlemen. And I remember meeting a few of my officer modules. I'm like, these guys speak the Queen's English and they got their suits. And I had I had no suit. So dad had to give me one of his shirts and his tie. And I didn't have pants that fit, so I had to wear jeans. And so I had this weird kind of business casual when I rocked up for, for Adfa. And the class photo of everyone from West Australia going to Adfa is like 23 guys and I'm the only one there without a jacket. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, so where were you on that one, bloody mum and dad? <laughs> I feel like this theme of fashion is going to underpin a lot of our kind of conversations because you've been... I was stung from a young age and <laughs> wanted to wanted to right the wrong. <laughs> yeah. But now you've been living in the Dandenong ranges where fashion kind of drops down and during lockdown it drops down to a level that we never even thought was kind of real. But, okay, so you're in ADFA you're spending, you know, four years there, is like the SAS dream still ever present or do you kind of get caught up in the other world? There was actually a path. So I knew I had to go through ADFA, then Duntroon, and then I had to get to an infantry unit. And then I had to spend two years at an infantry, or it can be any unit, but I wanted to go to infantry, which is foot soldiers, because I thought that's probably the best place to get training. It'll be the hardest place. And so the whole time I was trying to do my best because I wanted the, to be able to get the chosen to get the best unit coming out of Duntroon. And so I was always working kind of hard as a kid. I was doing a lot of sport and trying to do good things. And, um, you know, I did well at Adfern, pretty well in Duntroon. And I got to RAR, which we all knew was next up for the rotation into East Timor. So all the guys in our class that wanted to go infantry quite a few were gunning for two RAR so they could get to East Timor. And we got it. It was me, James Kidd, Phil Bretzo, um, a handful of guys actually in our class got it. And um, off we went. We flew to Townsville. We joined two RAR. We trained for nine months with our new platoons. I was 21 when I got there. I was just a kid. And um, trained with our platoons and then left to East Timor and just after September 11, 2001. Is 21 a young age for that or is that kind of more normal? It's pretty young. I think if you go through if you go through Adfer and Duntroon, it's pretty young. Like I was as young as you can kind of enter the place, I think. But it's good because then, you know, by the time I was in my mid-20s, I chalked up a, a good bit of experience and that's when I did selection. And so in East Timor, what are the type of roles that you have and, and what things did you guys experience out there? So Timor was, it was still not a fully formed country. It was a brand new country. It just declared independence. Um, hadn't even been formally established at that point. Militias had destroyed a lot of civilian villages and areas in, in those parts of East Timor. So we were put in different provinces to try and provide protection under a UN peacekeeping mission um and so we did that and then two missions i remember one was i was 
providing security right down on the Indonesian border to stop militia from getting through. So we'd be out for weeks at a time um, in the bush. And the other one was I remember doing uh, returnee duty. So it was coming up to Easter and the all the Timorese were generally strong Catholic um, segment there. So they were all trying to come back from these refugee camps that had been formed in Indonesia. They're trying to come back to East Timor to their homes that had been raised like only, only a little while before. And these families were in dire straits. They'd been living in refugee camps for a year and a half and they were carrying everything. They were carrying their dead, their possessions, their pigs and chickens. That's all I had. So it was, it was confronting seeing that. I, th- I remember thinking, God, I had no idea that the world could – there are countries right near Australia that have this, that have this issue. Is the mission always very clearly outlined to you guys or do you find that it's evolving based on the situation out there? Uh, it was fairly clear for East Timor. It was like provide stability, let these people get up on their feet, stop, disorder, you know, protect people. That was that was pretty clear. Like we were there to provide a security function um, and a little bit of governance too. We just we help people go about their business. So that was good. And that was quite clear. But later on in the Middle East, it was different. It was clear, but I don't think the overall strategy was that clear from the kind of political level. You know, regardless of your training, you know, regardless of your age, that must be an incredibly challenging experience and particularly for the first time to witness something like that. You know, you were in East Timor for seven months. What is the adjustment like returning from your first deployment yeah, I remember, I remember we got to the holding facility where you spend a day or two before you fly home. And I had a – my platoon sergeant was really good, really good guy, and he'd basically had to coach me through this whole thing. He was an older, more experienced guy. I was young. And he'd done it every day for seven months straight. And I remember talking to him about it. I'm like, God, that was – it was h- kind of hard to believe. I'm like, we were there seven months <clears throat> we didn't see combat, but we saw a lot of, I guess there's a fair bit of, bit of suffering, a bit of poverty. And then <clears throat> I went home and, yeah, it took, it was, took me a little while to get used to being home. We'd had a, a malaria drug given to us as well, which really knocked me around. It was called Mefilcon. That was a really severe medication. It was like a trial. They went, that knocked me around for a long time. So... When I came home, that took me a couple of months to kind of return to normal. But then we were back into training and, you know, we were fine. Seven months is a really long time to take a malaria tablet. Um, mm. Did you have kind of side effects whilst you are in East Timor that were different to when you were getting off the drug? Yeah, the mefloquin was a larium drug and it was had larium and I don't know the exact science for it, but that gave everyone hallucinations and the the FDA in the US pulled it or banned it because it was basically a, a psychosis. It would induce psychosis in some people. Um, so it was a pretty oh, – I'm, I'm surprised they did it. I think there's a class action against it at the moment. <clears throat> but, yeah, there was like a 1,000 soldiers they did it to. And my unit was one of them. Mm, so much is being explained right now. <laughs> That's why I'm still wacky, you think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's multiple 
things I could point <laughs> for that. <laughs> so over the next couple of years, you're, you you got to do quite a few deployments in the time frame before you then decided to do um, SAS selection. Mm, yeah, I did another one. We went to the Solomon Islands. So, and that was a surprise because that kind of came from nowhere, but there was a there was a bit of instability in the Solomons. They wanted to reclaim the weapons that were over there due to some militia groups that were starting to kind of interfere with the stability of the place. And they're good people. We we went over there on navy ships and helped police. It was basically a policing action, to be honest. Um, but it was great. I was in an assault pioneer platoon. Um, we had boats. We drove them around out there and help the police insert to villages and it was it was a cool trip i really liked it you know this time in your life isn't just characterized by deployments it's also the period where your mum got really sick you know how did that process unfold and and how did you manage it with your career um i remember chatting to dad and he said oh mum's had a check and she's got some something cancerous i can't remember the exact details what he said but i remember saying something cancerous we're going to operate on it remove it he's like it's all right don't don't worry but I, of course i was worried um and then i ended up kind of stopping the trip and coming home and mum was operated on so your mum had her operation did were you of the understanding that she would be okay i can remember both my parents saying i think we got it during the operation and the subsequent chemo. We're like, we're hopeful. Like they were saying, we're hopeful. And we're all hopeful because you don't want to think the worst at that mm-hmm. point. You just you just don't. You're like, all we can do is treat it and just, just hope. And so I remember I was out. We were out training on a Navy ship. We were out in the Pacific when I was in 2RAR. And this was early 2003. And, and Dad rang and said, actually, Mum's really sick. She's got, you know, she ter- she's terminally ill now. So um, doctors are saying she's got a couple of weeks left to live, maybe. And I was like, holy shit. And so to their f- complete credit, actually, the Navy put me on a Black Hawk that was on the ship, Black Hawk helicopter, flew me back to Rockhampton, and then I took a flight all the way back to Perth and, and got to Mum with my family. I mean, it must have been the most agonising flight that would have felt. I mean, I don't know how it would feel, but I can only presume isolating and terrifying. Oh, I, just, I remember getting to a some motel in Rockhampton in the middle of the night and I was by myself. It was just, it was pretty miserable, yeah. All, all I had was a stinky uniform and that was it, yeah. You know, we've spoken a lot about, you know, those final few days that you were able to share with your mum. You know, do you remember some of the conversations that the two of you had and, you know, how was the entire family unit coping with, you know, such a tragedy? Mum had been sick for eight months and, and there was a sense of not knowing. Like we we were hoping she was going to get better. And even my dad said it and my mum said when like when they said you're terminally ill mum goes well at least we know Mm. and in a way that uncertainty was was gone but it's replaced by this other um uh, terrible challenge of you know that's the end of the road like we kind of knew mum knew it was the end of the road so i think we were lucky too because she was pretty lucid at that point too we still had 
she was still talking. Um, she was still with it. She was able to s- say, you know, you these things are sent to test us and um, I love you boys. And, you know, she was a very strong woman. For all she was going through, she was more looking after us than she was worried about herself. She wasn't worried about herself. She was worried about us. And she goes, I wish I'd come to Townsville and seen your you'd bought an, I'd bought an apartment there. And she goes, I said, don't worry about that, Mum. And in that sense, I was lucky because and me, Dad, and my brothers, she wasn't stolen from us. Like we actually said our goodbyes, and that's that's pretty lucky. That's pretty lucky. She was she was still too young. She was fifty, but we were very lucky in that sense. Yeah. You, I mean, your mum was a nurse. It doesn't surprise me that like what's on in her mind is like the to care and to nurture for the most important people in her life. It's like one of the you know. Sub- massive disappointment for me that I never had the opportunity to get to meet her. I just feel like from everything you've said, there's a lot of similarities and crossover with the way my mum raised me, like strong country women. Um, but she also is a part of our lives all the time still. Yeah. And your dad is fantastic in how he still talks about her. Mm, yeah, that is really good. Um you know, I actually think, I mean, looking back, Dad especially, but but everyone, even my brothers, everyone was was good about it. Like everyone kind of was held together and was strong and we each kind of grieved differently, I think, in some ways, but we stayed as a family and that's, that's a good thing. Well, your mum also did kind of spark a reminder in you about the SAS. Yeah, I remember I talked about I remember bashing my parents' ears about it a little bit. Oh, I'm going to go to the SAS. I remember some adults making fun of me. I remember telling one guy saying, you go to the army, you'll be licking toilet bowls with you, you know, to clean them and using a toothbrush. And um, I remember being so insulted by that. I was like, you got no fucking idea. But when mum died, I remember thinking, mum's 50. I said, we don't have that long, really. Like, we don't have that long. It's the time goes too quick. So I remember thinking I've really got to – I was less afraid of of failing, I think, once mum died. I'm like, I don't really care now. I guess the reminder of the finite nature of our time kind of on the planet mm. is like this reminder of, you, you know, it's much better to attempt and to fail than to just kind of squander the time hoping for it but not having the guts to giving it a crack. Yeah. I think the the, the gift from mum was not being too embarrassed or worried about failing, which doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It still does, but um, it just made me more likely to try things later on. And I think when I got into ADFA and then later into the SAS, I thought, no, actually, you can apply yourself for years and years and years, just in tiny little increments, and it can add up to a lot, and you can really take your chances from being remote to good. You can actually increase your chances slowly by all the things you can control. Um, and remember, we watched that with, and Tony Robbins said that he goes, most people um, overestimate what they can do in a year, and they underestimate what they can do in ten years. 
it took me 11 years to get to SAS selection and the whole time it's all I thought of and it's all I kind of worked towards. And I didn't, you know, excel on selection, but I passed it. So that's all that, that's all that matters. Well, let's talk about when things are an outside chance and it's obviously a lot to do with the mind, but you just said it's a lot about the controllables that you have leading into that. So in a 10-year kind of journey to just SAS selection, what were some of the controllables that started to give yourself a better chance at defying the odds? So for me, the first one was my fitness. When I first realised I wanted to go to the SAS, I was in grade nine, I was a little bit fat. I was soft. I kind of played footy, but I didn't really train. And I remember going home that night and doing sit-ups in my bedroom and I was like sweaty and I could barely do them. And I was like, oh, I've got to train for the SAS. Like this is going to take a lot of a lot of this training. And I started running. And when I first ran, I had these huge basketball shoes on and college shirt. I just had no idea what I was doing. And um, – I just kept doing it. I just kept running and eventually I got running shoes and eventually I got faster and eventually I ran more at night and then I ran further and I dropped weight. And just over, you know, a year or a couple of years, I slowly changed myself physically. But the discipline of training is what really changed me. And I said too, if I'm going to go to the army, well, guess what? I can't take drugs. So there were no drugs for me in high school. I was pretty well behaved. Because I knew any sort of any criminal record would be an issue trying to go in, so I, I tried to kind of keep myself on the straight and narrow, and that so that was just one thing you can control before you even get there that, that will help. I mean, did you ever have inclinations to kind of take any of those pathways of drugs or you know, kind of bending the rules into criminality? Was that ever a part of who kind of? your personality is? No, no, because I never felt the social pressure to do it. I'd look at it, and d- this is actually full credit to Dad for this. He had v- he was very relaxed raising us kids, but he had a couple of red lines. He's like, don't take drugs. Um, you're not getting a motorbike. Like little things that young men don't fully think is an issue, but it's not until you're old you realise the things that are probably going to, lead you down a bad path uh, uh, those those types of things you just can't you can't assess risk until you're older like it it takes until you're 25 for your brain to be fully formed that you can make the right judgment call so that steer from dad was a good steer well can we talk about the idea of following the crowd versus kind of paving your own lane i mean i know as a, a kid that was the biggest kind of conundrum in my life of not fitting in um, and feeling the repercussions of being alone and wanting to alter myself to fit in with the crowd, but then deep down knowing that being different is a good thing too. But for you, like where did you sit with that? Mm, it's a it's an interesting one because it's human nature to run with a flock because mm. there's safety there, right? But you see, and I see it in kids now, you see kids that aren't the same as the other kids, they're different, they get in trouble. And it's not till now you realise that's going to be their greatest strength, whether they've got, they can't sit still. Well, guess what? They're probably good in construction or special forces or they're going to be an ultra marathon runner. So I think I was the same. I was that 
I didn't really hang. I didn't aspire to be one of the cool kids. I was kind of more interested in the thing that I dreamed up, um, and I'm glad I stayed that way. I think. Have there been tendencies through your life? Because obviously, there's a part of SAS that's about protecting those who are vulnerable, those who are minorities, those who don't have the capacity to fight completely for themselves. And you could please correct me if I'm wrong in that kind of very <laughs> cursory assessment. But is that a part of kind of your DNA a bit? Uh, the earliest I remember of that is if there was a kid being picked on in class, I would always make sure they were they they felt like they had an ally, and so I would either sit with them or talk to them. Or I was more couldn't bear at the thought that someone w- would think that they were alone and had no no mates. So I was happy to surrender you know, to 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 lend a hand like that. I don't think that was ever an issue for me. Well, I've experienced that in a different way, um, you know, <laughs> with you. You got picked on. No, because. On Survivor. <laughs> uh, so for those who don't know, like Mark and I met um, when we were contestants on um, the TV show Survivor in 2017. And I guess it would be fair to say, like, I started by feeling like I really fitted in and I made connections but then very quickly that turned to be a massive weakness because, you know, it's funny, what's a strength can become a weakness very quickly in the game yeah. of Survivor. So um, I felt isolated pretty quickly, mm. but I felt like I had an ally in you and I felt like a very loyal one. Um, now the big question whilst you're being recorded, was that because you thought I was really cute or because you felt like I was being picked on? Uh, I actually <laughs> didn't. Well, firstly, yes, I thought you were very cute. Secondly, I didn't know you were being picked on until we got to that last vote and I was like, oh, shit, what have you done? <laughs> like, what were you doing when I, when I wasn't watching? You bloody uh, got all these uh, tribe people um, aligned against us. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> but um, it was funny. It was, I thought it was funny. Well, let's go to selection because we've been watching over the last couple of days in quarantine because we're – quarantine gets you watching more TV than you would normally watch. Um, And we have been watching the UK version of SAS Who Dares Wins. And obviously the um, Australian version has just actually started to air tonight, episode one. And, you know, part of me is intrigued by it because it gives me this view, a very small view, I think, into the, the life in which you've led and not just to what selection was like, but also to the mentality of the guys who stand beside you. Because I, I can't help but watch, what do they call them? Not the, the DS. The DS and the, what else is the other name for them? Staff. Staff, DS and staff. <laughs> I'd be terrible. Um, I've been watching it so much and I've already forgotten their names. But um, I'm watching them and I'm seeing their relationship and I'm seeing their humour and I can see you in it. And I'm like, oh, you guys have a sick sense of, like, what is funny. Um, so... I've almost forgotten my question, but my question is like essay selection. It's a, a time in life where everything has been put out onto the table. You know, the 10 years, the intensive training that you did beforehand, your, your future is being put in the hands of someone else, but I guess the reality is your future is being put in your own hands at the same time. So can you walk me kind of through that experience? Mm. There was When I went on to selection, it was very hard to find any information on it, any people that had done it, it was really hard to find out what the hell this black box really was. And I, I think, and talking about the show now, the, the 
SAS Who Dares Wins show. If you showed me that when I was in the unit, I would have hated it because I'd be like, these, who are these drop kicks? Who do they think they are? <laughs> I look at it now, I'm like, this is actually really good because it's a bit of storytelling. It's completely harmless, it's entertainment, but you also get a bit of an insight into these um, guys that are real characters. And I think it, for me, it's a reminder and it's been good because Sam, I can explain certain things about him. I'm like, oh, this is that and this is why you behave this way. And it kind of gives me, lets me bring Sam into that world a little bit. Um, but when I walked onto selection, I was pretty young. I think I was 23 and I was excited. I trained three months on the, there's a physical training program for it. But the hard thing is, is not the physical side. It's what mental skills you're going to bring with you. What's your character like? Do you look after your mates when it's really hard or do you kind of slack off? Um, will you really push yourself hard to support a team and do do so to the detriment of your own body and mind? That's kind of what it comes down to and they push you to the point where you have to make a choice about that. There are certain times I can remember where I'm like, I can't physically do anymore here but I'm going to have to find a way because my team can't do it without me either and so I think that that flicks a switch in or it takes you to a place that you've never been before and they're good at doing that they they reduce you down to nothing they, they wear you down and get you to do jobs that just look impossible and they see how you respond and I think I'm, I'm glad I kind of just stuck at it and didn't get overwhelmed it didn't quit when it got hard because I think people regret that. Like it's it's easy to get overwhelmed in those situations. It's just there's a lot going on. You're in a lot of pain. You haven't slept. You haven't eaten. It's incredibly stressful because you've got these instructors on your case and they're not even saying anything. They're just standing there looking at you and you feel like you're the size of an ant. But uh, I'm just glad I kind of stuck in there. It was, it was, a, good, it was a good thing because it, it really – was a childhood dream to get in there. I mean, what were the types of things that you were drawing from? I mean, when you're telling this that story of you're physically at your capabilities and maybe mentally, and then you know that it's important that you are a team member and helping out the team. Like, how do you, how do you access that extra thing? Um, I think only worrying about the mission that you had. So you know, as a team, they go right. You're going to move this. 200 kilogram box, seven kilometers through the bush. It's nighttime. You've got packs on. You you can't quite find the way. It's dark. You, you can't pick the thing up because everyone's tripping over. Like it's easy to get sidetracked in that environment and just bumble fuck around. But if you've got a strong mission focus, everyone's like, we've got to do this. Let's move this. Let's work together. And then you talk to each other and then you encourage each other and then you help your mate when he falls over. And like those little things is what, gets you working together and that's when you can actually do things that aren't don't seem possible is when you actually cooperate as a team sounds crazy but it's it's so basic it's so basic yet so hard to do is to cooperate to work well and stay focused on just that mission I mean, two things. When you're saying you're focusing on the mission, would you even say like the mission for like the next few steps as opposed to you said you have to get this kind of big, big piece of something, you know, to X? 
are you actually just focusing on let's lift this up and that's that's the mission right now let's move this five steps yeah. that's the mission right now we you'd hear guys saying they'd be like to that log and you see this log like 10 meters away and you'd you'd give everything to get to that log and then you'd all fall in a heap again and then you'd have to pick it up again and go again so and we do that for hours and hours and hours until there's nothing left and so you can't do that if you're not cooperating mm-hmm. and you can't do it if you're not concentrating on your job because there's so many other things you can do you can go and walk in circles and sunbake if you want but your mission is the most it's the most critical part so with cooperating for me that sounds like this humanizing element of a environment that is hyper competitive or at least filled with hyper competitive people Mm. who are very goal oriented who potentially have some ego because you can't show up in this arena without a degree of ego where does that humanizing element come from and when you see that in like corporate arenas like what's the types of things that you're telling people to tap in to bring that out because it seems like you've got to be focused on the mission but if you can't be a human to get other people to also access their extra strength you know you can't on your own operate yeah it's a bit of a paradox because you've got to be focused on the mission but you can't get there if everyone's broken or you haven't looked after each other. So that is really um, the crux of it. I think knowing that your mate next to you has a certain set of values that he's going to stick to when it's hard, you know how he's going to behave. That's comforting. You know when it's really hard, this guy's not going to give up on you because he's been put through his paces. And so that gives oh, it gives you a really strong level of trust in your mates and that makes it a really good place to work. Because you know, no matter what happens, I'm getting carried out of here. Even if I mm. get shot down or I get lost, like they're not going to leave me behind. They're going to come and find me. Um, that's what I loved about it. Yeah. We've always had this conversation about, um, you know, that there's no females in the Australian SAS, um, or at least that I understand. Um, it's a world that is still relatively secretive. But I've always been like, but women bring different things to the table. So sure, I might not be able to carry the amount of weight that you can. And maybe because of that, I might not pass some of the barrier tests that you have in selection, but I bring something else to the table. And you've always said to me, yes, Sam, but everyone has to be able to do any role because the reality is if your mate gets shot, you might be the person that's left there to pick them up yeah. and get you out. And it's that trust that all of you have passed a certain threshold of a standard that allows you to do your job and kind of push the boundaries. Mm. Yeah, there's, yeah, there has to be a certain standard that everyone meets. And the standard is high because it's everything beyond that. That's just table stakes. That just gets you to the table. And everything after that is the hard stuff. Do you think some of those, because some of the stuff is extreme weight, like extreme like strength required in combination with speed. So if I, I can't help but think of someone my size, and I'm sure there's guys in my size, but there's also females my size. Do you think it could be helpful to just slightly drop that standard, like just ever so slightly, so you get a diversification of the types of people, i.e. gender, in that door? So it's a tough one. I think that this is like essay selection for women is like the four-minute mile. No one thought it was possible, and then when it happened, 
thousands and thousands and thousands of people started breaking the four minute mile. It's a it's it's a psychological and physical barrier that will eventually be broken. And when it does, that's when the tap will be turned on. Um, and it might even have been, I've been out of the unit for 10 years. I, I haven't even been keeping up. Maybe they do have some females, mm. I don't know, because they've been authorised to join combat roles in the Australian military. I also don't, and I agree with that, but it also I also know that people don't understand the realities of combat. It's incredibly, um, obviously, severe. Men shouldn't even be doing it to that it's that much of a destructive um, act. And so thinking, oh, this is fine, we can all do it. It's not so simple. Like we can all do it, but it's not so simple. Like it's it's a very – I just know that when we have these arguments, I'm like you, you kind of don't know what you're getting yourself into, and I didn't either, but soon we'll, we'll find out, yeah. Yeah, as much as we talk, I'll probably never really get it, but it's so helpful to – continually have conversations about this and I just you know find it so intriguing that when you you know you have this really self-deprecating style of communicating particularly about yourself you know you'll always say to me that you just scrape through and knowing you it's hard for me to, to perceive you as just scraping through but let's just say you did when you are accepted into the unit if you've scraped through are you, or if you're at the top of that cohort you know how are you now received in the unit the good thing about the course is you're either suitable or not suitable. It's kind of binary. And, yeah, there's differing levels of, you know, some people excel and some do less. But really the real training starts when you do the reinforcement cycle, which is 18 months where you are trained up to get all your skills that you need to be a special ops soldier. So that'll be close quarters fighting. It'll be uh, parachuting and demolitions and uh Patrol course, we were out in the green for six weeks at a time and then small team leadership and urban combat and there's a ton of different courses. It was honestly the funnest 18 months of my life. But that's where you really start to get exposed to all the different strengths and weaknesses that your teammates have. Um, and so, But you can be kicked out pretty much at any point during that 18 months, it's not over as soon as you get into selection. But once you're through the door... Once I say yes, you're, you're suitable to start training, you are treated differently straight away. Mm-hmm. You're treated like an adult. In the military, you're not always treated like an adult because the average age of a soldier in the Army is not old. They're in their teens sometimes. In the SAS, I think the average age was about 33. It was much older. And so you're dealing with adults and they know that you've got a certain standard and so they, they treat you well and the onus is on you to get everything right and I also felt I got treated better again once I passed close quarter battle, which is a really tough course, which is indoor fighting. You know, people fail. It's all live fire six weeks. We shoot so many bullets, you, the lead count, lead in your blood goes up. Um, r- really intense. And so you're always trying to stay in that unit. You always have to strive to be good. And they used to it used to be a running joke, you know. This is a daily renewable contract. <laughs> Such a so stupid, <laughs> and it is true a little bit. Um, one of my mates said, "You're not actually in the SAS until you're out, and you're ex SAS, <laughs> and then he goes, you get more credibility when you're out of the SAS." <laughs> it's like he's kind of right in some ways. Well, is that because? Yeah. 
one, there's very little affirmation in that world. And once you've left, you can actually talk about it and civilians probably have more respect for it because they have no idea what it is. And obviously, if you you know, there's respect given to those who serve as it, as there should be. So I, I want to know that question about the affirmation side inside the unit, but also like mentally, how do people cope when it, it can be taken away from them at any moment? Like, do you have fear of showing weakness, you know, in an arena right now where we say it's important to show vulnerability and weakness in order to grow? Like, is there space for that in the unit? No, that, the fear for me went eventually because you, it's just ever present. It was ever present. And then eventually you're like, actually, I think I've got enough to be able to do it. I think you reach a critical mass of skills uh, and you're always learning, but you you reach a critical mass of skills at some point and think, oh, actually, I think I can do and learn whatever we need to do and learn and, and survive. So you had chronic fear. <laughs> Som- sometimes. Shit. I mean, on the selection course, you, you, you think the dream's going to be taken away from you. On the reinforcement side, I was like, oh, if I do this wrong, something's going to be taken away from me and I'll get kicked out. And then eventually you get in and you start doing the jobs. And But you always got to be careful. Like if you fire, you accidentally fire your weapon in the wrong place, that's it. Your reputation and career is probably ruined. Mm-hmm. People still talk about that stuff. <laughs> like it becomes folklore. You, one mistake. It can be one mistake and you. it's, um, it's a very exacting environment to work in. Did you ever make a mistake that nearly became folklore? Oh, mate, I, I missed through a grenade when I was in um, officer training. That was pretty funny. I missed through a grenade and that, um, long story short, in a grenade throwing bay, you meant to throw them into the target area. I threw it, fumbled it, and it landed on the, on the sleepers in front of us. And... Uh, Anyway, me and my mate had to run out of the bay and this grenade exploded behind us, but we survived. Anyway, everyone talked about that. That was Everyone's like, oh, you can't throw a grenade. You think you're big and can't throw it. I know when you're in Afghanistan, you often had grenades with you. Yeah, but I tried not to throw them. And I had to. So I didn't tell anyone in the unit that I couldn't throw a hand grenade. Oh, it's just because now that, you know, you're out of the military and I know you, I mean, I don't know you from that time. I know you from like, you know, since you've been at McKinsey or your kind of your final days there and then kind of working for yourself. And, you know, I've always been really intrigued by the fact that I consider you to be quite risk adverse and you hate it when I just tell people that you're (laughs) risk adverse. But if we kind of put the two of us side by side together, you'd be significantly more risk adverse than me. I remember when... Safety conscious is a better term... (laughs) It's a a better term, but yeah. Hey, tomatoes, tomatoes. Um, When I took Harry as a six-month-old to New Zealand, I took him on a zip line and I I had him on like a a backpack, so it was tightly connected to me. And I just knew that if I sent you the video of it, you just would be like so furious (laughs) with me. But okay, so where does this come from? So I'm trained in safety. You're not trained in safety, and so I kind of know what can what can go wrong. I've seen accidents too, so I know what can go wrong, and I just prefer to you know it's, mitigate that. I get that, but we're not always living in a war zone, and so your degree of the the chance. I know some risks, you know, and thing bad things can happen, but I'm sure 
the probability of it is higher in the situations that you've experienced through your career. But now that we're out of that, are you just still not able to switch that off? Is it like ever present? Yeah, I think actually come to think of it, because the army's so strict on it and I was strict on it. I think it's just a hangover from that. I think it's, yeah, I think it's just a hangover from that. That and the fact that you are crazy with our child. (laughs) I'm not. Well, do you want to talk about Afghanistan? Because that was really the peak and most intense experience of your time in the SAS. You know, you completed four back-to-back deployments. It's hard to kind of imagine it. I remember thinking, what's over there? Like, how is it set up? I couldn't really imagine what the place looked like and what the how it operated and what the fighting was like. Um, I just knew that Australian squadrons were over there, Australian forces. There'd been some battles. I desperately wanted to get over there. I wanted to lead guys in that type of environment. It was it's the only reason we joined. It's the only reason we joined. And to me, it was a part of the good fight still. This was post-September 11. We were over there getting Al-Qaeda, the bad guys, hadn't really there was we we're fighting the Taliban as well in the early stages um, but I just wanted to get over there with the team and those positions were hard to get um, they were called a rotation so if you did a rotation of six months I was a troop commander so you had the chance to take a team over there um, I got I was in East Timor with Ben Pronk um, and we were doing a – it was like a follow-on mission into East Timor. And I remember him coming back and saying, hey, they're going to raise a fifth rotation. It's going to go late in the year, which is getting towards winter. He goes, you might, we might be able to get you on there. I was like, whoa. He said, yeah, we might be able to pick the officer and um, we'll cobble together a team. And so I, I ended up getting that position and we formed – E-troop, and it was a composite troop of patrols. And we came together in, I think, August of 2007, trained together for a couple of couple of weeks and then went to Afghanistan in September of 2007. And when we landed there, I just remember getting off the plane on this dirt airstrip and seeing these mounds, these huge mounds, just slabs of rock. Um, reaching kind of right up into the sky. Like we just don't get this in Australia, but there's mountains over there. And it was dusty, like so dusty you could kind of look at the sun. And the base was kind of all vehicles driving around and planes and bloody artillery shooting off. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And it was dusty and spartan, all plywood boards and doors. And and that was a secure base. So we land in these secure bases. They're probably the size of a you know, a small area like a primary school or something. Um, And then you launch out of there into the wider province to do your missions, and that's what we did. And what specifically, like, were the missions? So at that point, we're still doing what you call kind of reconnaissance missions. So going to areas that hadn't been looked at by, by coalition force in a long time and finding out what's there. We just didn't know what was there. In a lot of cases. So in the early stages, there was this trying to understand what our terrain was like, what the enemy was like in that area. And it morphed over the years. It got more and more aggressive. So, all right, we know there's enemy there. Let's go get him. 
and at the start they fight from the desert and then we started fighting in the in the thick valleys the green belt and then eventually we started with helicopter missions up so we got more and more aggressive as time went by and there's a lot of this in the media now they're saying you know sas were misused they're meant to be reconnaissance soldiers it's kind of bullshit like we can reconnaissance is one of the lead missions that we do because it's so hard and so unglamorous and so difficult but so valuable strategically the SAS is really good at that. We're probably one of the best in the world at it. Um, strike missions, which are really offensive kinetic operations. We also do them as well, called recovery missions, where you might get a hostage or you might go and target an enemy leader. That's hard. That's fighting as well. Um, and they're complex missions and they're difficult to execute. By the end of Afghanistan, we're doing a lot of those. So it kind of evolved over time. In the early stages, we're doing much longer duration missions um, you know, driving into different valleys, trying to find out what was there. Um, and in 2007, we started getting into the green belt. We started getting our green uniforms on and going to where the enemy was and then fighting him. And that's the first big mission room was, was called, it was a valley clearance of the Chora Valley. It's called Ops Spingar. And, um, yeah, we were part of the advance force that was going to help the clearance mission. And we landed there, and that's the first kind of bit of combat I was in. It was in the Chora Valley. Was it anything like what you had uh, been briefed on or expected? I didn't realise it was so biblical. Afghanistan, there's nothing there. I'd seen Iraq as well. That that was kind of developed. It had cities and towns and universities. There was nothing. These Orizgan was an ancient province. There were these mud-walled huts the occasional motorbike, and apart from that, it was all ox and bloody plows and agriculture, really ancient people. The clothes, like hand-spun fabrics out of Pakistan, like very ancient place. If you took away the cars, it would look like it was 2,000 years ago. So it was really ancient. And I remember seeing it thinking, these are just a different people. They're completely different to us. Um, and they were tough, the men. They're mountain folks. They live hard lives. They don't have, you know, modern healthcare and the Kardashians. They're tough people. I mean, when you start to acknowledge that these people are just so different than you, does it then start to become challenging to reconcile the types of work that you're doing to create this certain type of order which you perceive is the right order for them? Yeah, I... Going back to the Solomon Isles, I remember speaking to a SAS captain that was there. This is before I got in the SAS, and I was like, I knew he'd been to Afghanistan. I was like, what was it like? He's like, it's fucking ancient place. And he goes, you know, we're arrogant Westerners trying to impose our kind of will on these people. They're pretty, they're pretty tough. And I remember that being surprised. I'm like, oh, you think this, the Western military can dominate anything and anyone? And it's just not true. It's just not true. It's much harder than that. And I think that's kind of what I, I remember seeing him and talking to him. I'm like, what are we? It's like a parallel mm. world. I was like, what do, we, what do we have to, how are we going to bridge this? How does that even work? What are we trying to offer them? Yeah, just it wasn't clear. I'm like, I was just, yeah. It was actually in the early times, it was, we were trying to get rid of the Taliban. And you think about it like, oh, maybe we can clear these guys out. But eventually you figured out we were 
partially responsible for creating the allegiance to the Taliban as well. So it was kind of a very difficult to fix with military force. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very complicated, <laughs> I mean, to kind of imagine what it would be like to be kind of embarking on these missions with obviously creating a very clear vision in your mind of what it's for and then over time perhaps questioning it but also you have intense entrenched loyalty to your team and it's what you know now like the life that you're leading after multiple deployments is like it's habitual and it's your life and it's what gives you purpose yeah, I mean, that, and that first rotation we did was the first of a number of trips because we were just flat out. We were there for way longer than I thought. I was worried it was going to be over. In um, 2007, I was like, shit, this might be over soon. I'm going to get over there. It was still going. In 2013, we still had troops, SAS troops over there. So it went for a long – it went for way longer than it should have. And in the end – I can remember asking a a colonel, an army colonel that was working at Prime Minister and Cabinet. And he was briefing us at Duntroon and he had a suit on. I could tell he was very pleased with himself because he was an army guy in a suit. Um, and he was all pleased with his position in Prime Minister and Cabinet. I remember saying, what's our strategy in Afghanistan? And he kind of paused for a second. He like... He couldn't answer it simply and he, he kind of admitted it. He goes, I think it's this is really an effort to support the alliance with the United States. And I was like, man, in 2010, we I think there were 10 Aussie, Aussies killed over there. I'm like, that's fine. If that's what we're doing, that's fine. But let's admit it and let's change our force structure to reflect that and not, you know, not send troops into battles. They're not going to be able to change strategically what's the experience like for you guys when you're losing men like literally by your sight and i've talked about this before at length but um in that first combat mission i was in we suffered a fatality in my team one of my team leaders was shot and killed um in a in a battle in a cornfield and eventually kind of degenerated into a, a battle that went across the entire valley and we were stuck there for some time trying to move around and get out of there. Um, it was a very tough day, very tough introduction to battle, incredibly stressful, um, changed my life. I'm kind of saying it in a detached way, but it really changed my life. Um, that was the first time we'd lost a guy to direct enemy fire for a really long time. I think since Vietnam, there've been one or two guys killed by mines, Andy Russell and Poppy Pierce only a, a little while before, but direct fire, that was the first time in a really long time. It just didn't happen to us. We'd been in a lot of battles in the SAS and it was the first time. So it was a shock. And then as the campaign unfolded in 2010, there was a huge spike in fatalities. There was a number of commandos killed in a helicopter crash. There were um, a number of infantry guys killed in battles or killed by mines. They were getting hit by IEDs. And I think that was the point where we were like, this this strategy better work because we're starting to take a few losses. So, I mean, you've kind of described what happened, but you, you haven't really explained like what it's like for you guys. 
Yeah, so that's the interesting bit. The when our own guy Matt Locke was kind of mortally wounded in battle, what struck me about the team was that no one really skipped a beat. Like everyone was doing their job, everyone was fighting back. No one stopped and like went, "Oh God, isn't this terrible?" Um, and not just in the kind of hour-long battle there, but immediately after as well, guys were still doing their job. Um, that really impressed me. And I think everyone kind of thought, we're just going to get this done and we're going to process this afterwards because there's no other way to do it. If you sit there and try to appreciate the enormity of all that when you're in it, it'll stop you doing your job at will. So I think we all kind of went back and dealt with it a bit on the trip, but mostly when we got home, I think everyone kind of dealt with it in their own way. Um, but it's, it's just a shock to, for someone like, and again, I'd had my mother die, but for someone to get kind of stolen when they're that age, when they're at their prime and they're young, that's a real loss. That's a real loss. I was shattered by it. You know, for you guys to be able to compartmentalise, to be able to do your job, you know, what types of things are you doing to kind of shut off that emotion and, and the processing that probably would remove you from the function of your mission? Well, the good thing is we've generally trained for it. So if someone's shot or injured, you're trained in, in how the drill works. You know there's going to be one or two guys that are going to grab him or, you know, they're going to cover first and a couple of guys are going to grab him and you're going to pull him out of the danger. Like we've trained in that so many times. So you kind of know what to do and just having that as an anchor point is a good start. So you kind of have these drills that are, that are ready to go mentally. You don't even need to think about it. That's in the kind of the heat of the moment in the battle, but what about when you finish the battle and you've got that kind of You've got that lull before the next thing. How do you keep Oh, yeah, so you were talking then? more about that, were you? Yeah, I mean, because I just think it sounds like you guys really did most of your processing when you even returned back to Australia, and, you know, months, months later and even still, you know. No, it, it, thinking back, it, it rattled me badly because I was like, oh, fuck, we could actually get killed here. This is a real thing. And I remember we came back off of we, we farewelled Matt. It was like the day after that battle sent him off and went back out to do a final clearance. And there was a there was a heavy machine gun position we were talking about clearing that had been spotted. And I was like, fuck, no, that's going to be too dangerous. And one of my guys, um, Buzz, grabbed me and goes, pull your head in. You, you guys are more than capable of doing this. Don't don't be thrown by what happened to Matt. You can, do, you can absolutely do this. And I was like, he's right. We can do it. I was just... I had that immediate reaction to thinking someone else is going to get killed. That's not true. You, we can actually do these missions probably. And we got, we called it getting back on the horse. We did another mission not long after. And I remember that kind of threw the, the monkey off my back a little bit. I mean, skip to going home. And what does that, I mean, it must have been one thing to, coming home from East Timor, but coming home from that where there's actually lives lost and on both sides. What's that like when you return home? Yeah, I'm, I, you're still running a bit on adrenaline because you're busy and you're flat out and you're working with your mates. And then when I got home, 
I remember going back to my apartment and one of my mates, Billy, came around and visited. He's like, fuck, you look, you look fucking tired. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm strung out. And, um, and I hadn't yet fully appreciated what had happened. I think over the kind of weeks and months that followed, I, was, I felt unwell. And I, I do this in my talks. I talk about it all the time, but I couldn't. I didn't want to leave my apartment. Was withdrawn. Didn't want to talk to friends and family. Was having nightmares. Just unusual, really unusual things that were stopping me from uh, stopping me from being a good performer and from being my usual kind of happy self. Yeah, it had, it had kind of rewired me a bit. Um, yeah, I didn't feel hundred percent. You've said a couple of times since we've been in lockdown that some of the emotions that you felt during lockdown, you can kind of akin them to experiences like coming back from, you know, being in Afghanistan and not to kind of like put them too much in a similar boat, but can you kind of explain what you meant by that? It's trying to explain something that the general public hasn't necessarily experienced. So if you if you come back from Afghanistan, you're at a barbie, you know, and people are like, oh, hey, what's it like over there? You're like, oh, it's, you know, good. There's a bit of combat and it just goes over people's heads. It's not really possible to explain it unless you experience it or, or see it in real detail. And I think the lockdown in Victoria was similar. It was one of those things that you, it was unusual in that if you hadn't lived under that, it's kind of difficult to explain how onerous it was, and I found it towards the end, it was getting pretty freaking onerous. Um, whereas for the rest of Australia, it's just a bit of a, you know, it's a byline in the newspaper and, a, and an article in the in the news and a, and a social media post, that's all it is. You, you don't, you can't relate to it. It's like seeing this, the civil war in Syria, you know, it's a bad five-minute segment on, on the newspaper, but for some people it's a living hell. Yeah, I've, I've noticed since we've been in Perth, like, uh, well, going back before we came to Perth, I think I, were, I held a little bit of resentment going, people don't understand what our experience has been and uh, I guess maybe I was thinking negatively upon those for not wanting to understand. And then since we've been in Perth, um, you know, we've been in quarantine, but we've had conversations across the street from the guy across the road. And very quickly I saw, well, I noticed from his questions that he actually did want to know. It's not, um, yeah. it, and it kind of made me feel better going, oh, no, people actually do care. Yeah. They just haven't, they don't, they truly just don't know because yeah. they have not lived it and the media isn't reporting it to the way that it's been experienced by people because you, it can't, it can't be explained on a one minute segment what people are going through. And similarly, one of your friends um, dropped over um, some coffees and he just go, I, we tried to explain to him some of the things that we've been experiencing and he goes, I just thought that you guys wouldn't have taken the rule seriously because when we had the kind of quasi lockdown in Perth, the very, very beginning, people just kind of were going about their really everyday business that they just presumed we would have the same mentality. And then I said, well, no, we couldn't because the situation was very different. Everything and the, was shut. Yeah, everything was shut and like there was, you know, huge fines and all this kind of stuff. And it just made me go and I could see in his face like this moment of, oh, my gosh, like yeah. I really did not take into consideration like the ramifications for 
my friends in that experience and you know beautifully he then like every the next couple of days there was nice little hand off a lot of alcohol to us <laughs> and there was little hampers and food and you know not that I need someone to give me a gift to make me feel heard but I did I could see it on his face that it's not that he didn't care it's just that people are challenged to have difficult conversations because people are not wanting to overstep their mark of trying to relate when they know that they can't possibly relate so my big ramblings of that is sometimes we can hold up defensive walls that actually stop people creating empathy and stop people being able to relate and connect. And it really comes from both parties coming into it with like a desire to want to connect with someone, which I think for your case, like when you got home from Afghanistan, did your parents, and I think you had a girlfriend at the time, did they try and probe conversations when they're noticing that your behaviours are different? I think people are worried about it. They think if they ask or talk about it, they're going to make it worse for you. But it's not the case, I don't think. It's not the case because most people are okay to talk about it. They just don't get asked or they think people don't care or... I was certainly okay talking. Like, I didn't mind. If I was asked, I'd tell people. I wouldn't say, oh, it's secret. I think that's kind of bullshit sometimes, but, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm sure there's some secret parts of your job, but, like, there's the secret S- parts. Yeah. That's the thing. There's secret parts, but it's an open, it's open knowledge that Australia has these units. They do, they have a selection. Like, all that stuff is open knowledge. So, um, I don't mind being asked. I'll talk about the open knowledge stuff and, and never the secret stuff. Let's talk about, you know, dealing with trauma um, because I think a lot of people deal with, you know, trauma on so many different levels um, and I'm, I'm going to be releasing a podcast in a couple of weeks also with Rich Roll and we talk about a different form of trauma. But let's talk about the trauma from combat, from the experiences that you had um, and how you reintegrate and you heal and you know, you, you essentially transform yourself, as I kind of titled it at the beginning, being the transformer. You, you left the only world that you really knew to become something else. Mm. Yeah, so the I think with uh, trauma, first thing is it's common. You don't have to be a soldier. You, you can be a car accident victim. You could have suffered a sexual assault. There's, there's all sorts of things that can um, induce some level of trauma which can create issues for you later or a mental illness later on. Um, so it's not unique just to soldiers. Um, it can it can happen to anyone. I think I definitely felt it after my first tour in Afghanistan, just the kind of near misses and the, um, the stress of it and the burnout of it. Um, I felt those changes in me, that there was something wrong. I had depression and PTSD. That's what I was diagnosed with. Um but to combat it, the first step was saying, was admitting to myself, oh, no, this isn't a normal little thing. There's something wrong that you're going to need help with and you won't fix this on your own. Um, once I said that to myself, then I was on the right track and I went and spoke to a psychiatrist who diagnosed me and then sent me to an, a neuroscientist. Um Guy was a psychology and a neuroscience major, but he was really good. And he goes, he goes, I'll tell you about the fundamentals mm. because this this is not hard, but some of your treatment is going to be 
these fundamentals. And, I'm, and we're going to start with um, the way you eat and sleep and exercise. We're just going to start you doing those three things really well. Um, he goes, it sounds super simple, but let's just start with these and see how they go. And he gave me a sleep routine and um, gave me some tips around exercise and how often I should do it and how hard. Uh, he talked about diet. He's like, you know, eat well. And um, slowly I noticed changes when I started doing that because I'd been burnt out. After all those deployments, I was drinking heavily because it was a strong drinking culture in the military and that was not helping me at all. I had bad sleep, bad nutrition because of it and I was getting more and more burnt out. So when I slowed that down and started sleeping more, started taking care of myself, I really noticed a big difference. Um, and then at some point I remember saying I'd like to – have a go at something else, another career. And that's where I got the idea about business school. I'd visited New York City in the US and I kind of loved those big lights. And I was having that kind of the vision again of being in a big city with a big skyline and New York was such an exciting place and I wanted to go there and learn and live, uh, you know, study there and live there for a while. And that's where I got the idea of business school. Which is interesting because, I mean, a, a couple of your mates from the SAS have kind of gone a similar route in terms of going going and doing their MBA and then um, working consulting. But you chose to do it in a way that you had no financial support and had to invest a huge amount of money to kind of go, you know, to the US and do it. Once again, like why did you choose to take that path versus maybe in a space that would have been a bit more secure for you? Um, I had a couple of people say that, like, don't worry about the US MBAs, like go to a good Australian one, you'll have a better network here. And I was just like, if I'm going to give away a career that's been this good and I've worked that hard for, I've really got to try and try and go for the top. And I'd always wanted to go to the US to play American football. When I was a kid, for some reason, I wanted to play football over there. (laughs) And my parents wouldn't send me. I wanted to go on exchange. Anyway, when this came up, like, this could be my chance to go over. And I thought I might as well try for those top schools because if I don't get them, then I'll be okay with that. But if I don't try for them, I'll always wonder. And so I started working. I I did my homework. I thought Columbia University initially because I knew it was in New York. And then when I did my homework on MBAs, I realized, oh, actually, there's all these other ones and I settled on Harvard, Stanford, and Warden. They were the three I really wanted to go for. And someone had recommended Warden to me. He's like, I actually really like veterans. You should try them. I'm like, oh, I don't want to go to Philly. <laughs> and then when I saw it, I was like, oh, actually, this looks really good. There was something about them. Philly's like a real bare knuckle. Like they're, they're capitalists. They've, you know, they're property and wall street they're like killers up up in the northeast and that's what i loved about business school i remember the first day i was there someone asked the the maths instructor the statistics instructor like do we get marks for our working out he's like he goes let me get this straight you want marks for being wrong (laughs) he goes you're either right or you're wrong here you don't get points for trying this isn't communism (laughs) <laughs> I was like, boom. Oh, my God. That's awesome. And uh, I was like, holy shit. And they, they were gung-ho. They were the, the most squared away people I'd ever met. 
and they were so nice. That's what struck me about it after coming from the military, which is like the bloody legionnaires. Um, these guys were really nice. They were tough, but positive, optimistic, nice people. Well, I'm getting um, Mary Ellen on the podcast. She's like head of the whole thing. Head of the <laughs> <laughs> She runs that joint. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I'm getting her in, so I don't want you to feel too much about the warden experience. But, you know, did you feel a little bit like a fish out of water? Because, I mean, th- th- you would have had to do things that you'd never have probably even conceptualised before to a completely different arena. Uh, on day one, I was at a summer camp holding hands, talking about um, <laughs> to, to holding hands, singing with a, my new study group. Like it was the most bizarre experience to go from a fighting unit to a bloody uh, business school where we're kids again. Everyone's in their like late 20s, early 30s, but we're all, all kids again. Um but it was such a good circuit breaker. Like I was away from all the, all the, my friends in the military in that world, which where I could kind of keep one foot in the door if I wanted to. I could keep talking to them, and I was taken away from that and put in a totally new environment. And I had no fucking idea what I was doing. I didn't even know what a stock, like what a bond was, what financial. Theory, I had no idea about any of that stuff. And so you're a real rookie. You, you know, you got. We went from being top of the class, everyone listened to us, everyone was afraid of us to just a rookie. Um, which space do you rather, like that rookie space or uh, the commander-in-chief? The minute you get to be that good, you shouldn't, the clock is ticking on your obsolescence. So if you get to the top of your game, start looking for something else because if you can climb a couple of mountains, then they start to mutually reinforce. So all the things I learned in the military and, and in business, I try and fuse together now because it's worth more than just the one field. Yeah, multidisciplinary is good because then you start to they start to reinforce each other. Um, so I'd always say try something new. Do you have that shock of being at the bottom again? Like, is it unnerving for you? It's shocking, humiliating, frustrating. Um, I was failing classes uh, and other kids were just sailing through it, Mm. sailing through it. And it gave me some humility because I thought, you know, being special forces and having survived the war, I can pretty much do anything now. I can pretty much do anything. I got there and realised that was so far from the truth I, I I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have the academic background. And some of these kids had been in this game for 20 years. Their fathers were in the same game. They, they're seasoned veterans, and I thought I was just going to walk into it and be fine. So it gave me some a bit more respect for the field I was going to and to say this is a craft and a science and an art. You've got to learn it. And I think it's important to have that thought about doing an apprenticeship if you go to something don't think you're just going to stroll in there and dominate like do your apprenticeship even if it takes a year or two under someone else learning you know cap in hand that's that's a good thing and that kind of um it goes against um, many younger people's mentality of that they've got to be the best straight away um there's not that appreciation of the process and i think when we try and rush it while we may get some technical capability, some people are quick at 
building up their te- technical acumen, you lose emotional intelligence. You learn, you lose what it's like to be the, the best things about being a leader is that you know what it's like when you're not a leader because that's how you learn how to connect with people. Yeah. Um, so I think people just think, oh, but I'm making the grade, I'm learning the right skills, but you're missing so much by rushing the process. Mm-hmm. Yep, so true. Well, we're in um, Perth right now and we've had like so many people reach out to us and ask us why we're in Perth and it's been this interesting process for us because obviously there's very few reasons that you can get over to WA right now Um, but we're on the same time we're also here for you know pretty personal reasons but um, do you want to kind of give like a little bit of light to it? Yeah so I was when I was a kid in West Australia I was very young Um, I was a witness to a historical child sex abuse case um, and I'm now in WA after being summoned to give evidence around this case. I'm also the complainant in the case and so I won't go into the detail of it because the case is going to be heard but uh, I never said anything about this um, incident that happened. I explained it to my parents when I was a bit older and I'm glad I did um, but 30 years later, we've decided to take it to court and it's been a good process for me because it was something that I'd kind of relegated and then one day I just said, you know what, I think I'm going to do something about it. And it's now going, it'll now go in front of a jury of my peers and they'll decide the the guilt or otherwise of the person that the complaint is being made against. So... Child sex, sex abuse cases have a long-lasting effect on those who experience it. It's such a complicated thing because uh, we obviously don't want to talk very much about it because that, it hasn't gone to trial, but I think one thing that's important is like, and I listened to this on a Tim Ferriss podcast the other day where he said, you know, one in three females experience something of this nature and the statistics are one in six men experience something like this. And then there was this whole conversation of there's really no reason why it's one in six versus one in three for boys, but quite possibly boys don't feel comfortable to, to either admit it in the moment or even admit it down the track. And one of our very good friends who we've told her about the situation, um, she ended up passing on to her boyfriend um, why you and I were going to Perth and his first response was, oh, Mark wouldn't want you to tell me this. Like, you can't tell us this. And when she told you that story back, you were like, well, I'm not the pedophile. Like, I'm not, I'm the victim. Like, I've got nothing to be ashamed about. And it's that has stuck with me, like, so much since that conversation between the two of you played out that, you know, perhaps that's a stigma that men don't talk about this because they uh, either shame themselves or there's kind of like the a- assessment that there's shame from other people by talking about it. Yeah, I think it's um, – I think when you're maybe younger, I, I think people like are confused by it or they don't or they're ashamed of it and they don't yet have the maturity to deal with that. But I think for me as I got older, I was like, no, no, this is not about me really at all it's about people that think they can take advantage of 
of, of defenseless people, which, you know, elderly people, kids, completely defenseless. Mm-hmm. And so I, I thought about why I wasn't doing it. I was like, you know, you've got to kind of get over yourself. It's important. I think it's important to do that. The only thing that would stop you from doing something like that is, you know, the fear of all the complications it brings up. But I, and I think one of the hardest things I've done is go to the police and lodge a statement over that. That was a very hard thing to do. But then when I'd done it, I was like, it's fine. I'd spent kind of a long time thinking, oh, that's it's going to be too hard or it's going to be, you know, the waiting is always worse than the, the doing, I think. And I think I told a lot of people, they're like, why are you going to Perth? And I told them. Mm. about the the case I you know just gave them the background because I don't want to I don't want to lie about it just about every person I, I told said oh you know what this happened to me or this happened to my friend or this is so widespread it's so widespread I mean obviously this impacts you know us being parents and, and realizing that this is a genuine threat um, for children do you think there'll be some point when you'll share this story with Harry, like tell oh, him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'll tell Harry the whole thing. I'll just, the, the, the lesson for me, the the importance of self-protection, the importance of understanding boundaries, mm. of understanding that he can tell us, um, he can tell his parents, he can tell his friends, that's important because I think, People reliance or perpetrators rely on silence, mm. um, and it's yeah, the, it happens. People don't talk about it. Yeah, I mean, once again, it it funnels back to the fact that you know, if us as parents aren't willing to have that challenging conversation with our son because we think that's protecting him or we feel awkward about it, we're not actually serving him or empowering him to know that he has he will be heard if he shares that type of information with us. And I just think it's so important. Um, that you, we can do that for him. So it's, and I mean, it's such, I've never had a period of my life that has been more entrenched in family. I mean, and obviously we only got married in December. So it's just been like this intense baptism of fire of marriage and just dealing with, you know, our family and, and kind of having work a little bit kind of quarantined to the side. I've never used the word quarantine so much, but I, I, I use it in many different references now. But, you know, work is quarantined and like the, the fam- family is primary and you know maybe let's just finish this conversation by like asking you how this year has been for you i think it was um god it has been a year when you think about it like first of january in victoria i remember harry coughing in bed because of the smoke from the fires that that had settled up there um so it's been fire pestilence bloody plague the, the whole thing so, and this isn't going to go away. It's going to be it's going to be a years long iteration. I'm kind of stealing myself and, and us for that. I think this is going to be years long. But I also liked, in some ways, retreating to basics. We kind of pulled together in, at home. We, I'm so glad we ran through and got the wedding done <laughs> in <laughs> December because we would have just got smoked if we'd done it later. And um, I also um, pitched my book like pitched to a publisher to do a book because I'd always wanted to do a book. I always liked writing. Thankfully got that and was able to work on the book during lockdown. Um, so that's been a blessing. I found since they locked us down a second time in July, 
I found that really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, really long, grinding, uncertain reduction of personal freedoms and not imposed by disaster but imposed by a bureaucracy. That That's a hard thing to accept. I found that really hard. And so kind of getting away from that and getting to WA has been good and within 36 hours we're going to be free and I feel a bit guilty leaving family and friends behind but um, I'll be enjoying the beach. Well, one thing that you kind of, I kind of realised in the last couple of weeks of our lockdown in um, Victoria is that you hadn't seen any men Um, because like my in our 5K radius, um, our kind of community is more females um, who live up in the Danong Range with us. And it was this aha moment when I was going for a walk with one of my friends and I'm like, Mark hasn't had any masculine energy, you know, and I think, I mean, you know, I offer a, a bit of good masculine energy at times, but, you know, for someone who spent so much time in trends with masculine energy, you know, during your professional life, to now have a period of time to not have that at all. Like I think that was definitely a consideration of, you know, the toll that it might have taken as well. Mm. Yeah, isolation has been rare for me because I had the army and even at business school I had mates there. When I was in consulting, that was quite isolating because you're travelling, you're on your own a lot. And then since we've been locked down, it's just been us as a family unit. But a lot of my debriefing and talking and that I do with you, but I also do it with mm. my friends that understand me and have, that understand what I've – not understand me in that way, but come from the same background mm. and, and kind of know me from that as well. So I always miss that and I found I felt pretty isolated wasn't calling him enough or talking enough, so I will do a lot more of that now we're in WA. Okay, and then very, very last off, I like to finish this um, with a couple of my guests if the mood feels right. Can you tell me right now one thing that you are grateful for and something that you are great at? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm grateful for... Beautiful WA sunshine with my family. I've missed sunshine and we now have bucket loads of it. And it's been such a treat just to have it in the house and to have you and Harry together in one place where we're not working, we're just together. That's been really good. It's had its moments. (laughs) Holy God, it's had its moments. Um, But it's been really good. And then what am I great at? Computer games. <laughs> you are. I'm very good. <laughs> very, very good at computer games. I was the best in my family. <laughs> I could beat, even when I pick up a game now, I can learn it real quick and start beating people. <laughs> yeah, that's Mark's, Mark's little. He didn't tell me when we got together that he was a former gamer and uh, that came out during um, when Harry was born. All of well, sudden- that's why I don't have a console because I just play too much, but now I've got an iPad and sometimes I play a game on that. It's my scope. I guess we all need our versions of being able to relax and unwind. What time is it? It's 10.30pm right now for us. But uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, my love, my love of my life, my partner in adventure. Um, This has been an insane year, but there's no one else I'd rather do it with. I feel like it's special that we get to cap that moment off with a podcast and a deep dive conversation. Well... I've been watching you do these podcasts and you've got better and better and better and I just want to tell you that I'm very, very proud of you. 
So I am recording this outro, you know, just after re-listening to our conversation and I'm by myself right now. And I, I guess I'm going to say it now that I'm not in the, you know, earshot of Mark. I just could not be more proud of this man and you know, the, the things that he chooses to share, they are very personal, very, very vulnerable, and we don't often hear people, you know, of Mark's experiences talking about this side of things. Um, and I just find it incredibly compelling and very brave at the same time. And I, I hope you guys found it helpful, even if it was only to understand, you know, the experiences um, of someone from a, from a world that might be, you know, distant from what you might live as well. And I just think when we can communicate with people from different lives that is what fosters understanding and compassion and that can only be a healthy thing there are many ways that you can reach out to mark um you know when he typically only used to have linkedin and in fun fact when we first got off survivor it was linkedin which was the way that he communicated with me but since then he has instagram his profile is mark.a.wales he also has a website uh, i'll put all those details up on the show notes but that's just markwales.com.au um, yeah obviously feel free to reach out to him he has a wonderful book that's coming out next year uh, I've read it I'm so proud of it enough of my ramblings uh, if you guys like this conversation it would mean the world to both of us if you could rate subscribe all that kind of stuff on the podcasting platforms also take a screenshot of the conversation on your phone and then put it up on socials as well so other people can find access to it okay i hope you guys are happy safe and well wherever you are i truly mean it and um, look forward to bringing you an episode next week see you later guys